Chapter Seven of How to Write a Novel by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Brett Downey. Pitfalls and the Secret of Style. I propose to show in this chapter that a literary artist can never afford to despise details. He may have genius enough to write a first-rate novel and sell it rapidly in spite of real blemishes. But if a work of art is worth doing at all, it is worth doing well. No writer is any better for slovenly inaccuracy. Take the details of everyday life. Do you suppose you are infallible in these commonplace things? If so, be undeceived at once. It is simply marvelous with what ease a mistake will creep into your narrative. Even Mr. Zangwill once made a handsome cab door open with a handle from the inside, and the mistake appeared in six editions, escaping the reviewers, and was quietly altered by the author in the seventh. There was nothing particularly serious about an error of this kind, but at the same time, where truth to fact is so simple a matter, why not give the fact as it is? Trivialities may not interfere with the power of the story, but they often attach an ugliness, or smack of the ridiculous, which cannot but hinder, to some extent, the beauty of otherwise good work. Mistakes, such as that just referred to, arise, in most instances, out of the passion and feeling in which the novelist advances his narrative. The detail connected with the opening of the handsome door was nothing to Mr. Zangwill, compared to the person who opened it. I should advise you, therefore, to master all the necessary minutiae of travelling, if your hero and heroine are going abroad, of city life if you take them to the theatre for amusement, in fact, of every environment in which imagination may place them. Then, when all your work is done, read what has been written with the microscopic eyes of a Flaubert. Specific Subjects For instance, the plot suggested in the previous chapters deals with Judaism. Now, if you don't know Jewish life through and through, it is the height of foolishness to attempt to write a novel about it. The same remark applies to Roman Catholicism. You will find it necessary to study the Bible and Hebrew history, and when you have mastered the literature of the subject and caught its spirit, you will turn your attention to the sacred people as they exist today, their isolation, their wealth, their synagogues, their psychological peculiarities. Does this seem to be too big a program? Well, if you are to present a living and truthful picture of the Jewess and her surroundings, you can only succeed by going through such a program. Whereas, if you skip the hard preparatory work, you will bungle in the use of Hebrew terms, and when you make the rabbi drop the scroll through absent-mindedness, you will very likely say that the congregation looked on, half amused and half wondering. Just visit a synagogue when the rabbi happens to drop the scroll. The congregation would be horribly shocked. The same law applies to whatever be your subject. If you intend to follow a prevailing fashion and depict slum life, you will have to spend a good deal of time in those unpleasant regions, not only to know them in their outward aspects, but to know them in their inward and human features. Even then, something important may escape you, with the result that you fall into error, and the expert enjoys a quiet giggle at your expense. But you will have some consolation in the thought that you spared no pains in the diligent work of preparation. Perhaps your novel will take the reader into aristocratic circles. Pray do not make the tempt if you are not thoroughly acquainted with the manners and customs of such circles. Ignorance will surely betray you, and in describing a dinner, or an at-home, you will raise derisive laughter by suggesting the details of a most impossible meal, or spoil your heroine by making her guilty of atrocious etiquette. The remedy is close at hand. Know your subject. Topography and Geography Watch your topography and geography. 
have you never read novels where the characters are made to walk miles of country in as many minutes in fairy tales we rather like these extraordinary creatures their startling performances have a charm we should be sorry to part with but in the higher world of fiction where ideal things should appear as real as possible we decidedly object to the miraculous journeys especially as in most instances it is plainly a mistake in calculation on the part of the writer of course the writer is occasionally placed in an awkward position a dramatic episode is about to take place or more correctly the author wishes it to take place but the characters have been dispersed about the map and time and distance conspire against the author's purpose it is madness to blur the positions and risk the reader's acuteness but it is almost equally unfortunate to fail in observing the difficulty and write on in blissful ignorance of the fact that nature's laws have been set at defiance the drawing of a map as before suggested will obviate all these troubles should you depict a lover scene in india take care not to describe it as occurring in beautiful twilight it is quite possible to know that darkness follows sunset and yet to forget it in a moment of writing but a good writer is never caught napping in these matters if you don't know india choose cairo about which after half a dozen lengthened visits you can speak with certainty scientific facts what a nuisance the weather is to many novelists some triumph over their difficulties a few contribute to our amusement the meteorology of fiction would be a fascinating study in second-rate productions it is astonishing to witness the ease with which the weather is ordered about the writer makes it rain when he thinks the incidents of a downpour will enliven the narrative forgetting that the movement of the story as previously stated requires a blue sky and a shining sun or he contrives to have the wind blowing in two or three directions at once the sun and the moon require careful manipulation at the beginning of a novel the room of an invalid is said to have a window looking directly towards the east but at the end of the book when the invalid dies the author wishing to make him depart this life in a flood of glory suffuses this eastern windowed room with the red glare of the setting sun the detail may appear unimportant but it is not so and a few hours devoted to notes on these minor points would save all the unpleasantness and ridicule which such mistakes too frequently bring the reviewer loves to descant on the peculiar cosmology and physical science of the volume before us the moon is most unfortunate mrs humphrey ward confesses that she never knows when to make the moon rise and obtains miss ward's assistance in all astronomical references this is of course a pleasant exaggeration but it shows that no venture should be made in science without being perfectly sure of your ground grammar grammar is the most dangerous of all pitfalls suppose you read your novel through and check each sentence after weary toil you are ready to offer a prize of one guinea to the man who can show you a mistake when the full list of errors is drawn up by an expert grammarian you are glad that the offer was not made for your guineas would have been going too quickly in everyday conversation you speak as other people do having a special hatred of painful accuracy otherwise called pedantry and as you frequently hear the phrase those sorts of people are never nice it does not strike you as being incorrect when you read it in your proof sheets or somebody refers to a theatrical performance and regretting his inability to be present says i should like to have gone but could not so often is the phrase used in daily speech that its sound when you read your book aloud does not suggest anything erroneous and yet if you wish your readers to know that you are a good grammarian you will not be ashamed to revise your grammar and say i should have liked to go but could not these are simple instances there are hundreds more reviewing all that has been said in this chapter the one conclusion is that the novelist must be a man of knowledge he must know the english language from base to summit and whatever references he makes to science art history 
theology, or any other subject, he should have what is expected of writers in these specific departments. Accuracy. The secret of style. Communicable elements. One can readily sympathize with the melancholy of a man who, after reading De Quincey, Macaulay, Addison, Lamb, Pater, and Stevenson, found that literary style was still a mystery to him. He was obliged to confess that the secret of style is with them that have it. His main difficulty, however, was to reconcile this conviction with the advice of a learned friend who urged him to study the best models if he would attain a good style. Was style communicable, or was it not? Now, of all questions relating to this subject, this is the most pertinent, and, if I may say so, the only real question. It is the easiest thing in the world to tell a student about Flaubert and Guy de Maupassant, about Tolstoy and Turgenev, but no quantity of advice as to reading is of much avail unless the preliminary question just referred to is intelligently answered. The so-called stylist of all ages may be carefully read from beginning to end, and yet style will not disclose its secret. Such a course of reading could not be but beneficial. To live among the lovely things of literature would develop the taste and educate appreciation. The reader would be quick to discern beauty when he saw it, but the art of producing it, other than by deliberate imitation of known models, would still be a mystery. Is style communicable? The answer is yes and no. In some senses it is, in others it is not. Let us deal with the affirmative side first. This concerns all points of grammar and composition without which the story would not be clear and forcible. No writer can make a corner in the facts of grammar and composition. It is impossible to appropriate them individually to the exclusion of everybody else. And since style depends to some extent on a knowledge of those rules which govern the use of language, it follows that there are certain elements which are open to all who are willing to learn them. For instance, there is the study of words. How often do we hear it said of a certain novelist that he uses the right word with unerring accuracy, and this is regarded as an important feature in his style. Therefore, words and their uses should have a prominent place in your program. In the Silverado Squatters, Stevenson represents himself as carrying a pail of water up a hill, the water lipping over the side and a quivering sunbeam in the midst. The words in italics are the exact words wanted. No others could possibly set forth the facts with greater accuracy. Stevenson was a diligent word student, and had a certain knowledge of their dynamic and suggestive qualities. The right word. How shall we find it? Sometimes it will come with a thought. More often we must seek it. Lander says, I hate false words, and seek with care, difficulty, and moroseness those that fit the thing. What could be stronger than the language of Guy de Maupassant? Whatever the thing we wish to say, there is but one word to express it, but one verb to give it movement, but one adjective to qualify it. We must seek it till we find this noun, this verb, this adjective, and never allow ourselves to play tricks, even happy ones, or have recourse to slights of language to avoid a difficulty. The subtlest things may be rendered and suggested by applying the hint conveyed in Boileau's line. He taught the power of a word in the right place. In similar vein, Professor Raleigh's remarks, Let the truth be said outright. There are no synonyms. And the same statement can never be repeated in a changed form of words. The number of words used is another consideration. When Phil May has drawn a picture, he proceeds to make erasures here and there with a view to retaining wholeness of effect by the least possible number of lines. There is a similar excellence in literature, the literature where there is not a superfluous word. Oh, the gassiness of many a modern novel, pages and pages of so-called style, word-painting, and description. 
The conclusion of the matter is this. The right number of words, and each word in its place. Frederick Schlegel used to say that in good prose every word should be underlined, as if he had said that the interpretation of a sentence should not depend on the manner in which it is read. It is also highly necessary that the would-be stylist should be a student of sentences and paragraphs. Surprising as it may seem, it is nevertheless true that many aspirants after literary success never give these matter a thought. They expect that proficiency will come. Proficiency is not an angel who visits us unsolicited. It is a power that must be paid for with a price, and the price is laborious study of such practical technique as the following. In a series of sentences, the stress should be varied continually, so as to come in the beginning of some sentences and at the end of others, regard being had for the two considerations, variation of rhythm and grouping of similar ideas together. And this, every paragraph is subject to the general laws of unity, selection, proportion, sequence, and variety which govern all good composition. The observance of these rules, and they are specimens of hundreds more, and the discovery of apt illustrations in literature are matters of time and labor. But the time and labor are well spent. Nay, they are absolutely necessary if the literary man would know his craft thoroughly. For the ordinary man, something equivalent to a textbook course in rhetoric is indispensable. True, many writers have learned insensibly from other writers, but too severe a devotion to the masterpieces of literature may beget the master's weaknesses without imparting his strength. Incommunicable Elements the incommunicable element in style is that personal impress with a writer sets upon his work. What is a personal impress? I am asked. Can it be defined? Scarcely. Personality itself is a mysterious thing. We know what it means when it is used to distinguish a remarkable man from those who are not remarkable. He has a unique personality, we say. Now that personality, if the man be a writer, will show itself in his literary offspring. It will be in evidence over and above rule regulation, canons of art, and the like. If there be such a thing as a mystic presence, then style is that mystic presence of the writer's personality which permeates the ideas and language in such a way as to give them a distinction and individuality all their own. I will employ comparison as a means of illustration by supposing that the three following passages appeared in the same book, in separate paragraphs, and without the author's names. Each material thing has its celestial side has its translation into the spiritual and necessary sphere, where it plays a part as indestructible as any other, and to these ends all things continually ascend. The gases gather to form the solid firmament. The chemic lump arrives at the plant and grows, arrives at the quadruped and walks, arrives at the man and thinks. He, Daniel Webster, is a magnificent specimen. You might say to all the world, This is your Yankee Englishman. Such limbs we make in Yankee land. The tanned complexion, the amorphous crag-like face, the dull black eyes under their precipice of brows, like dull anthracite furnaces, needing only to be blown, the mastiff mouth accurately closed. I have not traced so much silent berserker rage that I remember of in any man. In the edifices of man there should be found reverent worship and following, not only of the spirit which rounds the form of the forest, and the arches of the vault of the avenue, which gives veining to the leaf and polish to the shell, and grace to every pulse that agitates animal organization, but of that also which reproves the pillars of the earth, and builds up her barren precipices into the coldness of the clouds, and lifts her shadowy cones of mountain purple into the pale arch of the sky. 
now an experienced writer or reader would identify these quotations at once in some measure from a knowledge of the books from which they are taken but mostly from a recognition of the style pure and simple the merest tyro can see that the passages are not the work of one author there is apart from subject matter a subtle something that lies hidden beneath the language informing each paragraph with a style peculiar to itself what is it ah the style is the man it is composition charged with personality emerson carlyle and ruskin used the english language with due regard for the rules of grammar and such principles of literary art as they felt to be necessary and yet when emerson philosophizes he does it in a way quite different to everybody else when carlyle analyzes a chapter you know without the sage's signature that the work is his and when ruskin describes natural beauties by speaking of shadowy cones of mountain purple being lifted into the pale arch of the sky well that is ruskin it could be no other in each case language is made the bearer of the writer's personality style in literature is the breathing forth of soul and spirit as is the soul and as is the spirit in depth sympathy and power so will the style be rich distinctive and memorable professor raleigh says that all style is gesture the gesture of the mind and of the soul mind we have in common inasmuch as the laws of right reason are not different for different minds therefore clearness and arrangement can be taught sheer incompetence in the art of expression can be partly remedied but who shall impose laws on the soul write and after you have attained to some control over the instrument you write yourself down whether you will or no there is no vice however unconscious no virtue however shy no touch of meanness or of generosity in your character that will not pass on to the paper hence the oft-repeated call for sincerity on the part of writers if you try to imitate hardy it is a literary hypocrisy and your sin will find you out if you are meredith minded and play the sedulous ape to him you must expect a similar catastrophe if the style is the man how can you hope to equal that style if you can never come near the man be true to all you know and see and feel live with the masters and catch their spirit you will then get your own style may not be as good as those you have so long admired but it will be yours and truth to tell that is all you can hope for end of chapter recording by brett downey